Hello everyone. Once again let me welcome you to another episode in our multi-part series involving a thorough consideration of the 18th chapter of the book of the Revelation. In this ninth presentation, of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass, written by Mr. Alvin Mitchell, narrated by me, Erica, the primary question before us, is this thing called, American Exceptionalism. What we need to settle is the issue of divine spiritual worth, what's the standard? Who determines or sets that standard? God, or the white, evangelical churches? We know something of how they would, but, how does God assign value to a nation's, spiritual worth? Is it by a leader's quotations of scripture? Or, is it based on the scope and the gravity of a country's achievements? Or, bearing in mind that God selected and destroyed the grandeur of both the Egyptians and the Babylonians, does one's relationship or cozying up to the apple of his eye, standalone, necessarily give a nation special standing in the mind of God? Each of these ancient powerhouses was a choice instrument in the preservation and in the punishment of the people of God, by his design. Bearing in mind Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23 and his threatening castigation of the churches in the Revelation chapter 2 and 3, is this thing called, exceptionalism, some sort of biblically sanctioned, spiritual metric by means of which God elevates a nation and people, above their otherwise grievous existence, to some lofty preferred status, simply because he has abundantly blessed them and because they, stand with Israel. Is, exceptionalism, as a standard of measurement in fact an actual, Bible-based, concept, or just another lie straight out of the, pit, that has been latched onto and is now pandered by America's wayward churches? Hearkening back to the words of the late Ben Hayden, let's talk about it. Babylon the Great. Preface. Bastions of Deception. Masters of Self-Delusion. American Exceptionalism. A Nation of, Christians, in Rebellion to the Cause of Christ? American exceptionalism. What's that? Is it a thing, or is it a concept? Is it just another one of those catchphrases, if you will, adopted if not coined by America's white conservative Christians, latched onto by politicians seeking election via the support of that group, and passed off as some kind of a virtue to which God is honor bound, as it were, to be pleased or which elevates the USA to some preferred status in the eyes of God? Is it? What exactly is this, American exceptionalism? As we ponder this, concept, let no Christian ever in any wise forget the epistles written by the apostles to the New Testament churches especially the Romans, the Galatians, and the Corinthians and the one letter addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor. These were solemn warnings to recognized and beloved children of God that they were headed in the wrong direction and or involved in spiritually unhealthy relationships that was unacceptable and that will never be tolerated. Any Christian institution or individual off the proverbial beaten path that refuses to correct his course according to the will and mind of God, will be rejected and thrown into the flames of the lake of fire, not because it never was accepted as saved in the first place, but, just as if he had never been known as a child of God, per Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 to 23. All roads and all denominations of so-called Christian thought and ideology do not lead to God. The blessing of God upon a life or the lives of a people does not automatically infer favor or right standing in the eyes of God. One source assumes that the term, American, exceptionalism was actually coined by a French visitor who came to the shores of America years ago. It was an exclamation he made in response to some of the more obvious wonders he saw during his tour. Being white himself, associating and mingling primarily if not exclusively with white people, it is not hard to imagine that in all likelihood, he never saw much if anything, of the dark side of American life, it is even less difficult to imagine that in view of what he did see of the hellish underbelly, he was in full accord with. It is not clear if ever he visited the South, or, if he ever considered America in light of her hellish double standard where her practice quite contradicted her constitution and or laws that seemed on the surface to be just and fairly applied, at first glance. Used by some, for sure this term implies a set of values and concerns that somehow make the nation and its people, specifically the white people, uniquely virtuous, above all others. This, according to columnist and Harvard professor of international relations Stephen M. Walt, who also concludes an article he wrote with this remark, if Americans want to be truly exceptional, 
they might start by viewing the whole idea of American exceptionalism with a much more skeptical eye. He titled his article, The Myth of American Exceptionalism, dated the 11th of October 2011, published on the website foreignpolicy.com. As alluded to earlier, the general assumption is that this fabled exceptionalism is founded upon and grounded in God's divine sanction and his supreme approval of the actions of the Founding Fathers. But, is it? Consider. When former Californian Mike Pompeo appeared today, July 25, 2021, at Jack Hibbs Calvary Chapel Church Worship Show in Chino Hills, CA, he, of course, was careful to harp on this oft-heard theme or talking point. What these and similar Bible-thumping white Americans always choose to ignore is that the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks and the Romans, etc., were all, exceptional, in their respective times, each in his own way, in the eyes of God. Israel was to be, exceptional. God's promise was that he would make certain of that contingent, of course, upon their submission to his will, in willing obedience. Additionally, in light of that impending, Israeli exceptionalism, that nation was to have been a magnet to which all peoples of the world were to take notice and be drawn from their heathen practices to the worship of the true and living God on equal terms with his people, especially when they chose to personally identify as such. God drove this point home to Nebuchadnezzar, who he placed under the tutelage of Daniel, in the fifth chapter of the Old Testament prophecy book that bears his name. Each of these nations were pagan having no intention of ever bowing the knee to any god other than the ones of their imaginations. Still, each had a vital role to play in the plans of Almighty God which included everything from the birth and growth of a nation, to its punishment, to its destruction and to the preservation of his people, who were to be the carrier and the preserver of the seed line that would eventually bring forth the Savior of the world. The Lord God specifically told Daniel to ensure that Nebuchadnezzar fully understood that it was, is he the Almighty who gave those and all nations, not just the ancient ones, the power and the influence levels to which they were able to rise, and that, sometimes he chooses from among the lowest and rottenest of people to be rulers indicative, no doubt of his low perception of them. This should more than adequately explain the rise of the likes of Adolf Hitler, Idi Amin, Mao and even Donald Trump, etc. No people's embrace of such leaders elevates them to, righteous, status, however. Whereas all, including Israel, rose and prospered per the will of God, all were subsequently destroyed, per his plan and will. What then, does this say about the United States of America, and, its oft-touted, exceptionalism? Furthermore, the description of Babylon the Great given in Revelation quite clearly depicts a globally recognized entity that is at the very least, exceptional, compared to her international neighbors and trading partners. So, does this white America-branded exceptionalism in any way exempt the U.S. from the inevitable fate of the aforementioned nations? Remember, those nations never made any overtures toward God. Even the Jews and Israel were the people of God, the apple of his eye, only because he chose them they in truth never sought nor did they as a people ever seek to be in any wise associated with him. Contrary to those pagan nations of old and Israel in and out of Egypt, the United States by virtue of its white Christians, led according to their wishes by their white founding fathers, most if not all, deists, and Unitarians who did not actually believe in the God of the Bible. On the other hand, called and still today calls itself a, Christian, nation. In practice, however, it is and has always, for the better part of the past 450 years or so, been an unabashed enemy of all that God is or represents. When the major European powers were finally empowered by the mating of a Chinese toy we now know as gunpowder and cast-iron tubes that came to be known as muskets and cannons superior weapons to any available in that day, by any standard these white men, often in the name of God, began to spread out around the world, facilitated by boats powered by a harnessing of the wind. As they sailed, sometimes in search of gold, among other things, their eventual lust and thirst for the souls of men ultimately demanded of them that they thumb their noses at the commands of God, particularly as it relates to the prized, much-exploited African. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that you have been taught. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20, 
was an injunction that fell largely upon deaf ears wherever these white men thought that they had found a good slave. God's desire that all men everywhere should hear and obey his call to repentance. Acts chapter 17 verse 30 was met primarily, for centuries, with what amounted to scorn. Notwithstanding the consciences and subsequent activities of some white Christian groups which compelled their respective state legislatures to abolish slavery, the slave trade in general, followed by the Jim Crow era and all that that involved and the civil rights struggles that arose on account of Jim Crow, etc., were each and every one clear-cut manifestations of the very ethos of a nation of white peoples who, their churches included, were and who remain to this hour fundamentally anti-God and anti-Christ, at heart. Add to this the prejudicial mistreatment and unwarranted hate-filled discrimination of every sort, on every hand for any and every reason, unjust hangings, sundown towns, etc., etc. The list goes on, and on. More than just a fly in the face of the God of all heaven and earth, we are talking over four centuries of overt, unflinching defiance denial of which currently, by white Christians after the order of Mr. Pompeo and Pastor Hibbs is itself inherently, equally anti-God and anti-Christ, and then, in addition to lying about it and or whitewashing it out of their history books, led by none other than the likes of Dr. John MacArthur, they have the gall to insist, in effect, that this sort of thing has always happened, so, it's no big deal that we, Christian, people did it to blacks. As they have brandished their white skin as a mark of superiority, and as they have boasted about what they perceive to be evidence of God's favor upon them manifested by incalculable blessing, thanks to that whiteness and superior trait, they are totally ignorant of, or, they are willfully ignorant of, the fact that at no point would he ever allow the people, who he did choose, to succumb to such a line of reasoning. Exodus chapter 32 verses 9, 10. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 6. This should have been a principle, by which they governed their own lives. To claim that many other nations having committed atrocities against other people groups is justification for the wrongs they have committed is a patent falsehood that is biblically untenable. Not one of those nations ever self-identified as Christian. Furthermore, hearkening back to the two of the seven churches of Asia Minor, God made it abundantly clear that no people of his, whether churches or nations, will ever be accepted whose lives are divided by a compromise where submission to his will is accompanied by a willing embrace of that which clearly undercuts or is manifestly antithetical to that will. Worthy of note also is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Their experiences clearly infer that it was common knowledge that men having attractive wives could easily lose their lives, if they wandered carelessly into certain cultures. It was evidently a custom or practice not lost on the man after God's own heart. Nonetheless, God did not look the other way or say to his chosen, you know what? I have seen this sort of thing many, many times before. People and other kings have committed these types of wrongs for millennia. Therefore, it is okay that you did it. No big deal. No. Instead, God assured King David that he most definitely deserved the death penalty for both the murder of Uriah and for his adulterous affair with his wife. On the other hand, in keeping with his principle which says, I will bestow mercy as I see fit, upon whomever I choose, while his life would be spared, he would not be let off the hook entirely. Because his heinous action had given the Almighty a black eye, in the eyes of the watching world, there was a price that must and would be satisfied, at his expense. Likewise, or similarly, the greed-driven actions of the fathers and their descendants, since 1619, have given the Almighty a black eye, before the eyes of the watching world. Many souls have been lost and will be lost among Africans as well as white men, that could have been saved, on their accounts. Revelation chapter 18 says that there, therefore, is a price that must and will be paid and, it will be paid, by Babylon the Great. The name, Christian, precludes any such justification, insofar as the term itself denotes and demands evangelism or a, fishing for, of souls from the ranks of all men regardless of nationality, skin color or social status, for the sake of contributing to and building the body of Christ and the kingdom of God not for the enrichment of a white-skinned people who insist upon promoting themselves to a social status higher than all others. This whole black-white dynamic today rests firmly upon the racist foundations laid down in years past by America's white founding fathers. While granted, 
Things are overtly not nearly as bad as they were prior to the 50s and 60s. Everything from segregated all-white communities and schools to segregated white churches that don't do cross-cultural ministry, to every form of discrimination imaginable to the indiscriminate, all too often unprovoked killing of unarmed black people, was formulated and passed down to today's white generation by their fathers. It is the product of a system that encourages and promotes spiritually unhealthy compromise in practically all white churches. Thus, the effects of that past are still very much upon us, and except for a few powerful secular voices, white society does significantly less than enough to rectify the wrongs of those fathers. But for a few virtually silent voices somewhere in the background, the white church as a whole does practically nothing to redeem itself before God so it is no wonder they do nothing to undo the evils of the fathers. While John MacArthur is right to say that the gospel per se does not demand participation in social activism, he is lying when he says that the church's sole role is to evangelize and win souls to the exclusion of any involvement in social activism of any kind, which begs the question, if in his estimation, neither the churches nor the government should, then who? He is a liar when he asserts that the Bible nowhere advocates for social action on behalf of God's people. Consider Acts chapter 17 verses 5 to 6. Romans chapter 12 verses 2 to 8. 12. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 to 31. It does not matter how many nations have practiced social atrocities similar to what the U.S. has done, nor does it matter how prosperous God has made or allowed a nation to become. No nation founded by and or allegedly guided by Christians should ever have gone down the path such as has these United States in the name of God. There is certainly no rationale as to why such rebellion should have continued for the better part of 400 years. No church should have ever compromised in following any nation as have the churches of the USA. It is a lie straight out of the pit to say or to imply that exceptionalism, or wealth, or prosperity is an indication of a right relationship with God. The scriptures teach and Jesus, no less, affirms that God causes his sun to shine and his rain to fall on the just, nations, as well as on the unjust, or, godless nations. As already shown, greatness, and power, prestige do not a godly nation make. Or, put another way, God's involvement in the rise of a nation whether it be politically, education, monetarily, militarily, you name it does not automatically imply right standing with God, or, that God even has high expectation from that nation, as it relates to gratitude and observance, obedience or adherence to the will of God. It is not just a matter of the wrongs committed but the bad examples you set for centuries, not simply for a short while before you turned around, that cast God in a bad light. As with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who built sepulchres in honor of the prophets they killed, so likewise you who defend America's founding fathers justify their anti-God evils. Thus, to say that God stretched forth his hand to bless this nation, and, he did, on account of the righteousness of your founding fathers, is to affirm that they, and you, bit that hand, spat upon it, and pissed in his face in disdain in view of what you knew was his will, namely, the saving of those souls you chose to enslave, while at the same time denying them the gospel. Applying the exact same kind or line of reasoning you used to paint BLM protesters as out-of-control thugs and sinners against a holy and just God, those were, sins, Dr. MacArthur sins against God, committed intentionally with near-reckless abandon and total disregard for his word, his will and, being as you profess to be Christians for all of the past 450 years, his mission to save souls, those of Africans included. Therefore, the sins of rebellion, the sins of apathy, the sins of oppression, of the poor, of the widows you created, of the foreigners you brought to this land in chains, the sins of turning a blind eye, the sins of murder of over 100 million Native Americans, in addition to the millions of Africans. You may be assured, sir, somebody will have to bear the blame for these atrocities before Almighty God. Your lamenting of the fact of white men's culpability in these matters aside, the only candidates for that indubitable distinction is white America and, its muted churches muffled into silence by the bomb of compromise, my friend. So, first you ignore the facts surrounding the rise of BLM and their justifiable protests, regardless of whether they were right or wrong in how they went about those protests, then you ignore the sins of the fathers, 
who were indeed sinners against God, in undeniable, open rebellion against his will and purposes, writing them off as, what? Righteous saints. Social activism and the gospel. Social activism is a principle clearly defined in the Old Testament. Paul, in a manner of speaking, affirms as much when he asserts that the things written before in the OT scriptures were pinned not only for our edification but also, not as, laws, for examples or principles by means of which our lives could or should be guided. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 16, 17. That is, we should be able to look at these and see and learn what things are pleasing and acceptable in the eyes of our Lord, and so, order our lives accordingly. Whereas it was not required of the people of God that they should proselytize the world, they were to live life well above board, for all the world to see, with arms wide open, being welcoming of all peoples, of all backgrounds, with an ear and an eye to accommodating the social needs of all, as any given occasion demanded, to whatever degree said demands did not lead to a violation of the word and will of God. While the government of the OT was rooted in theocracy, i.e., it was to have been, theocratic, or, God-centered, it is the height of folly and fallacy to say that the sole purpose of government is blah, 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 to the exclusion of any meeting of social needs of citizens, that is, God as the ultimate or central governing authority in Israel had no concern for the social needs of his people, or, the foreigners living among them. Although it was not a stated requirement of OT government, God's near-constant voicing of concerns for the safety, the rights and the well-being of the poor, widows, orphans, foreigners, etc., makes it abundantly apparent that he would not have frowned on the government stepping in to lend a hand as needed. Furthermore, therefore, you may certainly be assured that he will not frown on white American government stepping up to rectify the social and other race-related messes that exist today in America, given that it was white Americans who created these inequities in the first place, using the strong arm of government. In the New Testament, the social element associated with the ministry of the gospel was in no way, by no means lost on Jesus our Lord. His near-constant working of miracles, feeding of thousands as he preached and ministered, and his dispatch of the twelve and the seventy with instructions to do likewise are clear manifestations of his unwavering desire to see social activism as a key ingredient in any strategy for winning souls. There is no hint anywhere in the Gospels or the Epistles to the effect that any of the Apostles ever understood their mission as one limited to preaching, so that they were to shut their eyes to the social needs of any of their hearers. When John in prison inquired as to whether Jesus was the one for whom all Israel had been waiting, Jesus was careful to call attention not, just to his preaching, but, to the more, social, aspects of his work as well. Matthew chapter 11 verses 1 to 6. Dr. Luke's Acts of the Apostles and certain of the Epistles of the Apostles all illustrate that all of the twelve went into full-time ministry following the death and ascension of our Lord with the idea of spreading a gospel message that had as one of its core concerns the, social, needs of its hearers. In so many words, then, Dr. MacArthur is again a liar, insofar as, there is no such thing as preaching of the gospel exclusive of a heart for the social concerns of those who are as well as for those who might eventually become sheep in any given flock belonging to the Christ. John MacArthur's rhetoric while calculated to exonerate the fathers, clearly implies that social inequities are solely the product of the black community's sins. That is, the plight and or those inequities of Africans in America in the past had nothing to do with white men, past or present. This also is a lie. Not that there is no sin in the black community. The historical record is the witness. To be sure then, the United States of America was to be and is indeed an institution like no other before it. Its founding people and the principles upon which they based that founding was rooted, ostensibly at least, in the Word of God, the Bible. Thus, unlike the pagan nations before them, this people pronounced, and they persist even today, to insist that they and their founding fathers were and are a Christian people, according to the likes of Jack Hibbs. According to Rev. Dr. John MacArthur and others, however, the founding fathers were in reality, deists, not true Christians, in the online video titled The Church is Wrong About Gay Marriage featuring commentary by Vody Bacham, John MacArthur, at about the 0650, Mark, Dr. MacArthur asserts that, they didn't believe in the God of the Bible, but, 
Mr. MacArthur went on to infer that the Bible and Christianity were mere tools that they knew would come in handy in their efforts to gain the confidence of and control over the people. This assertion and general thinking relative to the fathers, like Washington, the Adamses, Franklin, Madison and Monroe, squares well with online articles that make reference to their religious persuasions. In addition to being Unitarians, staunch Calvinists, etc., as fervent adherents to deism, the idea that God does not get involved in the affairs of men. Their faith was in human reason as the only avenue open to mankind, with respect to solving social and political problems. As such, therefore, they denied the Bible as the revealed Word of God and rejected Scripture as a source of religious doctrine. That being so, they also rejected all teaching as to the divinity of Jesus Christ, although they embraced the morality of his teachings. In so many words, Jesus to them was neither God nor was he the Son of God. Thus, the Founding Fathers, according to the site www.masters.edu, did not intend to create a Christian nation. Biographer Barry Schwartz says of Washington. Who was an Episcopalian? That he was a devout deist, and that many clergymen who knew him suspected as much, insofar as his practice. Was superficial, because he was not a Christian. The fathers therefore had a form of godliness, in which they openly denied that there was any power, beyond their own reason and understanding. He, Dr. MacArthur, was echoing the late Billy Graham, in that he asserts that America has never been a Christian nation. Certainly, we have this nation's legacy in attestation to the truthfulness of these observances, voiced by two of white America's top preachers. The tragedy is, and the one thing you won't hear the proponents of American exceptionalism expound upon is that American white people, Christians included, not only failed miserably, they even refused to live up to those principles and the ideals they professed to have espoused. With rare exception, they by their actions went so far as to set themselves up as antagonists of the word and will of God, by refusing to proselytize the Africans they stole and brought into this country by the millions, bred, bought, sold and treated like animals so as to breed millions more. Even after the white North abolished slavery, they still refused to submit fully to the will of God. The South even went so far as to cut out as much as 50% of the Bible to ensure that the Christianity they served to blacks who chose to convert could never lead those Africans to believe they could be considered brothers, to whom white people would have to relate as equals. As if all that were not bad enough, they still today whitewash, romanticize or otherwise do everything possible to minimize this most hideous of transgressions by rewriting history to their satisfaction. The facts be damned as they omit, whitewash, and leave out history deemed by them to be undesirable or non-essential to the record they wish to portray, true or not. This is especially true in the white American South, and among those of the Southern Baptist persuasion, although not exclusively so. Like the damned fools that they are and always have been, they remain hopelessly recalcitrant, lacking in any real concern with respect to the multitudes among not just the blacks of African descent but white people of Euro descent as well, whose souls have been and are being lost, at this very hour, because of a stubborn refusal to submit to what they know to be the will of God. In so many words, these lackluster Christians have costed the Lord more in souls lost than they may ever know. The effects of the racist groundwork laid by their founding fathers, in and out of the churches, are still with us, manifest throughout white society, as we speak. In addition, not only do they do nothing to alleviate the racial inequities and the problems created and handed down to them by their forefathers, they even despise the presence of people of black skin in their congregations. Thus, ultimately, their standing and their relationship to God today is about the same as that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' day. Just as they were the prosperous, influential religious leaders of that time, respected and feared by the people, but hated and rejected by the Lord they professed to serve, the same cannot but be true of them. Having usurped as it were an authority and position before God that was never theirs to begin with, whatever their deeds that they think are so good and noble, as relates to their interactions with other people of a white complexion, primarily, Christ having seen and scrutinized their lives and works from the very beginning, has also reserved for them the same welcome as the one recorded in Matthew chapter 7. Depart from me, you who work iniquity, I have never known you.
while some are like Ephesus and Sardis, Christians in name only, with nothing to show beyond that, others are like Thyatira and Pergamos. As such they have much that is indeed good and in keeping with the word of God, but, in the end it is overshadowed by their cultural, often secular concerns, completely eclipsed and awash in the unsightly blight of compromise. Still others are like the Laodiceans, having advanced so far in their faith, they refuse to mature or go any farther. All of these variations of the American white Christian are in danger of rejection and eternal damnation in light of their steadfast determination to identify with the social norms of the several worldly communities in which they live. Their values are not God's values. Hence, we may safely conclude then that American exceptionalism, as touted by the white American conservative, Jack Hibbs, Mike Pompeo and others, Christian and non-Christian, means nothing in the eyes of God. Many may stand ready, eager to jump on the bandwagon that says, the United States of America, is not John the Revelator's, Babylon the Great. Few, even among well-educated, well-rounded historians who profess to be Christians, can mate an understanding of their Bibles with their knowledge of American history and give an intelligent, thoughtful argument as to why or why not. And yet the issue of America's place in the end times plan of God is one that must be settled and God's supreme expectation is that, it is a topic that must be critically examined, thoroughly discussed and settled, thoughtfully and biblically not religiously by his churches, as his mind is not subject to how one feels, or to denominational, sectarian preferences or personal worldviews. With many white Americans bending over backwards to buy into and to sell the world their versions of an embellished past, including the whitewashed sins of the fathers, it is difficult to get a clear, unobstructed, unskewed, non-fumigated vision of the past of this great nation, from God's perspective, not twisted or slanted to say what white Americans, Christians or not, want to hear, making it that much more difficult to see why she might be, Babylon the Great, a blessed nation, yet, a country hated vehemently by the very soul of the Almighty God by whom she was conceived. We shall see why in the discussion to come. Nonetheless, the truth has and does continue to come out frequently borne by. A small number of white historians and a few in the white clergy each concerned and dedicated to ensuring that the truth, warts and all, relative to America's past, be made known. Let the best known, most popular of well-educated, white evangelical, fundamentalist pastors, preachers tell it, and the world at large would be hard-pressed to guess, that the story of the most blessed and most prosperous nation ever to grace the sands of time is also the story of the most hated nation upon which heaven has ever laid holy eyes. By the grace of God, this treatise the thesis and general premise for which rest in the fact that all evangelical and fundamentalist preachers, teachers and pastors who say that America the beautiful has no mention anywhere in the Bible, are not just wrong, but all too often flagrant liars promises to succeed, where all others have failed. The United States of America is the Bible's Babylon the Great, per John's Revelation chapter 18, and the Caucasian American to whom she has been entrusted, represent the most hated people, in God's eyes, to ever walk the face of the earth. She is not to be confused with the woman wearing the label on her head that reads, Babylon the Great, in Reverend 17. The two are not the same. She is regarded with a relish and a loathing akin to the hatred had for the Pharisees and the Sadducees who by the time of Christ had usurped an authority which by law was rightly the jurisdiction of the sons of Aaron, the priests and the Levites. The Pharisees taught the law, but, made no effort to live by or to guide the people accordingly, as rather they led the people on the basis of oral, traditions, passed down by their founding fathers. So likewise, conservative white America teaches what is expedient with respect to the word of God, but, live according to the dictates of the secular white communities in which they reside. In this study, author Alvin Mitchell peels away the wools of self-deception and self-delusion with which the evangelicals and fundamentalists, Pentecostals and others persistently and continuously deceive themselves and the world, exposing their lies and hypocrisy for all to see. The blessing of God does not mean a thing as far as a right relationship to God is concerned, he contends forcefully. One can be blessed of God mightily and yet be completely out of touch with him, hopelessly lost. Divine gauge to spiritual worth quoting the Bible?
Whereas the American white pastors lead their white congregations in making much today of the spiritual righteousness and Bible quoting of their white founding fathers, the scriptures make it plain that even a demon believes in God, and to the degree that his demonic existence is antithetical to the will of God, to the same degree, he the demon does that trembling, hobbling to and fro, guided by terror filled eyes, as it were, set in a head full of spirit, teeth that rattle in fear on top of rickety legs given to a high-frequency wobble with knees that knock, at the mere mention of that name. They know scripture, as does their leader, the devil and they quote it profusely. Jesus Christ was adamant about the reality and the coming of Bible-thumping and Bible-quoting false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, who greedily use and abuse the Bible, the word of the living God, to further their own ends and agendas while Paul says that they frequently disguise themselves as angels, messengers, of light. They and their congregations are those that, draw near to God, coming into His presence, with their mouths wide open, whether in praise or in prayer, honoring Him with lip service all the while, having hearts that are far removed from doing His will. Matthew chapter 15 verses 8-9. In addition, Jesus angrily berated the Pharisees, scribes and lawyers, unapologetically venting his hatred for them, yes. The lowly Jesus, meek and mild, hated them, and, he did not hesitate to show it. Their practices and their lifestyles, which included teaching the people what was right, according to the word of God, while at the same time exempting themselves, and the common people, when it was to their benefit, and overshadowing the will of God, with teachings heavily weighted in favor of the oral traditions and beliefs passed down by their forefathers, i.e., the traditions of the elders. Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 to 9, 23, 1 to 35. Dot the divinely sanctioned gauge by which you measure the worth and value of one's profession of faith in God and his Son, according to Jesus Christ, is his application of the scriptures to his own life, daily, and consequently, his actions, including, but not limited to, relationships to other men of other nationalities, relative to the express, therefore manifest, will of God, per the Old and New Testaments. Jesus went on to assure us that, his true servants are quite clearly distinguishable from the counterfeit by their lives, their actions and habits not merely by their Bible-quoting skills. No matter how profound or correct. Matthew's account of the Gospel shows us the devil during the wilderness temptation, inaugural to the church age spiritually assaulting his Maker and Creator by quoting Scripture, with measurable accuracy whatever his want for proper application. That is, the devil, in effect, declared war on the chief administrator of the works of God, directly attacking the master, with an open Bible in his hand. Put another way, the divinely sanctioned gauge by which you measure the worth and value of one's profession of faith in God and his Son, according to Jesus Christ, is his application of the scriptures to his own life, daily, and consequently, his actions, including, but not limited to, relationships to other men, of other nationalities, relative to the express, therefore manifest, will of God, per the Old and New Testaments. In so many words, the maxim, action speaks louder than words, was as much true then as it is today. Mere quotation of the Bible, or insertion of choice biblical truisms into select documents, that ultimately have no reach, no impact, beyond the printed page is merely the surest sign of pure hypocrisy. Moreover, three of our most recent presidents, notably our current President Obama and former President, the late Ronald, Reagan, have referred to and quoted the Holy Scriptures. When the dusts of time settle and their stories are told, however, not one of them can or could ever be considered in truth, God-fearing or a dedicated follower of the Christ however religious each may well have been to any and whatever degree they may have been actively involved in one local church, or the other. In addition, George Bush quoted scripture and called upon the name of God, during the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers. God bless America, he chanted earnestly, righteously, with what appeared to have been genuine innocence. The fact is, however, Mr. Bush was and is, said to be, an avowed member of the Yale-based secret society known as Skull and Bones. Skull and Bones is a powerful, far-reaching, satanic, mystical organization of predominantly white, upper-crust American men, who knowingly worship the devil. Certain, if not most, 
secret societies are said to require that their members hold memberships in local religious organizations, including the American churches, where they, being intellectually acute, often dominate and or hold leadership positions or other positions of influence that enable them to guide and or contribute to the misguiding of those same churches. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Wilberforce? Or Billy Graham? Even the retired but well-known evangelist Billy Graham having publicly confessed to turning his back on key tenets of the faith he once taught throughout his ministry, all around the world has come out in opposition to the idea of the United States of America as a Christian country, knowing that there are others just like him, of his caliber and stature, makes one wonder, does it not, who else? Who are they? How can you, or why should you, trust them with the eternal destiny of your soul? And yes, there are other white preachers and Bible teachers who voice the same observation, as does the late Mr. Graham. Thus, to assert that the Caucasian founding fathers of America were godly and or God-fearing men simply because they carried Bibles, from which they quoted and used scripture in many of their key activities, dealings and documents, when in daily living they intentionally and consistently made life a burdensome toil, an unbearable misery for Africans and others, or contributed thereto by standing back and doing little if anything, or nothing at all, for the better part of around 450 years, is the height of hypocrisy and the highest form of self-delusion. It is a lie, straight out of the pit. See the sidebar below, William Wilberforce, page 78. Unlike as might be true of the life of a William Wilberforce, of England said to have devoted a significant portion of his life in the battle to rid Great Britain of the shame of slavery and its injustices to Africans the lives of America's founding fathers, the vast majority of her white preachers, pastors and their congregations could never cut mustard, in light of the divine gauge. Wilberforce's conversion and profession of faith in Jesus Christ was marked and matched by a profound and enduring impact upon his thinking and, by consequence, upon his life i.e., his sense of a life's calling, in the service of Almighty God, in the wake of whatever his prevailing shortcomings and failings. Moreover, by distinct contrast, the white pulpits and pews of America are, and have always been, glutted by the presences of religious men and women who quote scripture, while managing lives that do not amount to a hill of beans, where real faith in God is concerned. They come before me, as my people, but with hearts that are far off from the will of God. Jesus quoted one of the prophets as preaching accusatorily. All too many are for the most part like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thus, Jekyll and Hyde saints. They are warm-hearted and loving, by day, when it's convenient, in their favor and in their best interests. A very present help to their public image the way they want to be seen and received, regardless of the facts, costing them little or nothing, in light of some anticipated ROI. On the other hand, they are like General Joab and his murderous brother, near kinsmen and cousins to King David, just as easily cold-hearted and calculating, by night, cloaked in the darkness of unquenchable greed, and thus, as cold-blooded as serpents and reptiles, when so dynamic a shift in the gears of thought suits their needs or serves them well. The American white man, most notably, the Southern Celts, and his churches wasted no effort ensuring the presences of two-legged, man-shaped, livestock, that could and would be easily, perpetually exploited and oppressed even to the point of completely denying several whole generations of Africans access to the gospel, and or, the privilege of peace with their maker. Furthermore, the Bible clearly teaches by its prophets in and throughout the Old Testament, as well as in the New Testament, that no nation, truly subject to the control, the leadership, the guidance and the direction of the Spirit of the living God, can ever practice the kind of gross, sustained, woeful injustices, driving and thriving brutality toward, and, mistreatment of other human beings, prolonged, inhumane oppression, repression, suppression of another people, as have the Caucasians of the United States of America, notwithstanding the God-mandated genocide of seven early nations, by the Israelites. God's manifest concern for all such was a recurring theme throughout the prophets. Further, in stark if not, startling, contrast, the American white man, most notably, the Southern Celts, and his churches wasted no effort ensuring the presences of two-legged, man-shaped, livestock, that could and would be easily, perpetually exploited and oppressed even to the point of completely denying several whole generations of Africans access to the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and or the privilege of peace with their Maker.
thanks to America's Caucasian peoples guided by the instincts of an animalistic, hide persona, the soothing invitation, come to me all who labor, being heavily burdened, and, I will, rest, you, was off-limits and therefore, expressly forbidden to any and all minds wrapped in skins of ebony. Much worse than Caucasian hands stained by the blood, the sweat and the tears of a colored people who might have heard only to reject the gospel message. The souls of white America as a whole is itself now forever tainted by eternal cries from the souls and throats of lost African slaves, presently ringing temporarily throughout the fires of hell. A black people denied that privilege of rest in Christ, by a clergy comprised of white submissives, totally subservient to, and controlled by white, secular interests, solely for sake of service to a national, greed, and a ceaseless lust for things temporal, as opposed to things eternal, i.e., the saving of lost souls whether Africans, American Indians, Mexicans, etc. This hellish Christian charade or Jekyll and Hyde travesty performed by white America is not something that a God who died for all men, who now commands that all men everywhere should repent and believe the gospel, would or will take lightly. Like the scribes and Pharisees of old, they took up the mantle adorning a role to which they refused to live up to, as they placed their own interests and greed ahead of the will of God which was and is to save the souls of all men, regardless of skin tones. Forgivable, though such an unspeakable and unjustifiable evil may well be, it is, in fact, no less an overt affront to the authority and to the sovereignty of Almighty God an insufferable challenge to that authority and sovereignty made worse today by the fact that, overall, the attitudes of white America presently, Christians included, particularly in the white South, has not changed much since emancipation, 1864, or, more recently, the end of Jim Crow, the presence, tolerance and or acceptance of those who might be termed token blacks and other, tokens, from other races in their midst, notwithstanding. It is a glaring sin, damning to its core, glossed over and whitewashed, played down or ignored, altogether, from which the nation and its arrogant, self-serving white Christians have yet to fall down in humble confession and repentance before a just and holy God who demands no less. Instead, indeed, they all, like fools, led by damned fools, in true Jekyll and Hyde stride, stand before the eyes of the entire world, ignoring the inhumane injustices hatched and perpetrated for which they alone are responsible, seeking, by whatever means, however subtly, to reverse all of the gains that have been made and accorded to blacks to correct those injustices, since Martin Luther King Jr. They, secular white society and their hopelessly racially segregated white churches, led by a new generation of young whites seeking to hide the shame of their past, in part, by denial of its present reality, hold on to their antiquated, bigoted, false notions of superiority, while effectively demanding that they be given a clean, social, bill of health, publicly by those whom they have oppressed, and still repress even today. In addition, therefore, you might say, those same early bigots have left a legacy of lies, in the lips of lying descendants, in the churches, of all places, who persistently and consistently spread falsehoods about what they know to have been the true condition of the hearts of those hypocritical forefathers, across four centuries. Underscoring and highlighting this fact is the boldness and the work of the handful of white American abolitionists, and others in the years leading up to and during the civil rights years, whatever their own theological excess baggage and spiritual shortcomings, there most assuredly must have been some. Spurred and or goaded into action by black abolitionists, it was they who created the platform for the inevitable military intervention and overthrow of those systematic and nationally systemic evils that so blight the history of an otherwise incomparable, great nation, unlike Britain's parliament, following the long, arduous years of debate, led by Wilberforce, they the white Christian southern states, in particular would never have submitted willingly to the wisdom of reason, or, to the guidance of the word of God in spite of their lying hypocritical professions of faith in God. To this day, they won't submit, nor will they let go of the traditions passed down to them by their founding fathers. John teaches us here in Revelation chapter 18 that this wondrously blessed, highly religious Jekyll persona purposefully and permanently marred by a greedy, low-down avaricious Hyde persona represents an incurable blight that cannot no matter how bleached and whitewashed be washed out. To whom much is given, much is required. Our Lord Jesus the Christ warned.
Where the blessing of blessings runs highest, there the bar and the level of expectation is set higher. Unlike our Lord's call to the wayward church at Ephesus, there is no call for this end times people or its backwards, spiritually bankrupt churches to repent. No expression of any expectation as that she would or should return to some prior period of fidelity. Furthermore, unlike as was the case of either the Ephesians or King Solomon who has been eternally rejected, having chosen the vaginas and gods of his pagan women over the true and living God there has been and there is no such prior period of fidelity for the United States of America. As Billy Graham and others have correctly observed, she is not now, nor has she ever been truly Christian. To that, John MacArthur concurs, stating dogmatically that the Founding Fathers were not Christians, strictly speaking, insofar as they were really, deists, who used God as a tool. A mechanism by means of which they could control and or solicit the support of a perhaps highly religious people, who were otherwise spiritually obtuse. She is therefore secular, and it is the secular that dominates her thinking, both in and out of the churches. Thus, Following the examples set by Wilberforce and the American abolitionists, true Christians, of all races, in America are urged to come out from among them. They should be diligent to distinguish themselves from the religiosity of incurably tarnished, deeply flawed and hopelessly corrupted Christianity that so fills and plagues the land of Babylon the Great, or, risk suffering the same fate as the rest of the nation. Further, they should demonstrate this change of heart by actions, not by lying lip service of empty words and fruitless Bible quoting, that is, marked by changed lives that include leading the charge to make reparations for all past wrongs and acts of deprivation against all non-whites, and, by desegregated churches, among other things. And so, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. We have reached the end of another compelling and telling segment of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass. Let me invite you to make plans to be with us next time when we will continue our examination of America the Beautiful and American Exceptionalism in Light of Biblical Teaching. Be sure to spread the word and encourage others to join in. Give us a like as you depart and we will see you next time. Until then, God bless you.